Dawson was asleep on the evening of August 22nd, 1922, when a loud crash woke her. She bolted upright and made her way over to the bedroom window, just as her friend Cora Norton came running in from the other room. The two ladies stared out of the window, which faced the front of their neighbor's home in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. The neighbor couple had just returned home from a night out when Cora and Flora were getting ready for bed. They wondered if perhaps the couple were drunkenly arguing when more crashes sounded. They were gunshots, three in quick succession. Cora and Flora stared across the street and into the neighbor's windows, just in time to see a figure running through the home towards the front door. Flora could not see above the person's knees because of the angle of the window, but she was certain it was a man from his slacks and shoes. Cora and Flora then heard a woman scream, and Flora was certain that the words she yelled were, Fred! Oh, Fred! The petrified women kept their eyes trained on the neighbor's home, and after about five minutes, they saw a light flash on in one of the upstairs bedrooms. Ten minutes after that, the porch light switched off. What followed was a series of dull pounding noises coming from inside the home. Flora eventually called the neighbor's telephone hoping to hear the wife answer and explain away a silly misunderstanding, but no one answered the call. Other neighbors heard the commotion too. John Ashley was outside the home when police arrived, as was fellow neighbor Dr. Harold Wright. Ashley helped the police try all the doors at the home to see if they were unlocked to gain entrance, but they had no luck. The only way in was through the French window in the living room. The only window left ajar. And the same window that had been watched by Cora and Flora after they were awoken by gunshots. The officers and neighbors entered the home through the French window, and, not seeing anything immediately wrong, proceeded to climb the stairs to the master bedroom. At the top of the staircase, just before the bedroom door, the men found a key lying on the floor. When they placed the key in the bedroom's closet door and turned the lock, the door opened to reveal the body of a woman lying on the floor. It didn't take the men long to realize that the woman was physically fine, just unconscious. When they pulled her out, she immediately became hysterical and unable to talk. The officers had yet to find her husband, so they continued their search of the home. The men returned to the first floor and walked toward the front door, finding a messy scene. Chairs were overturned and the rug was rumpled. As they got closer, they realized they hadn't seen the husband before because one of the overturned chairs was blocking his body. The man was lying in a pool of his own blood with his head shoved up against the front door. When the woman was coherent, she was able to explain to police what had happened. She and her husband returned from a night out with friends, and she was in the upstairs bedroom putting her hat away when her husband was surprised by a burglar downstairs. The next thing she knew, the closet door was slammed shut on her and locked. She began yelling for her husband and kicking at the door for as long as she could, 
but at some point her emotions had gotten the better of her. In her panic, she must have lost consciousness. After the officers gathered statements and collected all their clues, they set off to find the burglar who had murdered poor Fred Aesterike. I'm your host, Elise, and this is Season 4 of Old Blood, the historical true crime podcast. Welcome back. Chief of Detectives Herman Klein was suspicious of the wife from the get-go. During his career, Klein would work on some of Los Angeles' most high-profile cases, like the kidnapping and murder of Marion Parker by William Edward Hickman, and he led the case against Amy Semple McPherson for staging her own kidnapping. That very year, Klein was also working to solve the murder of famed movie director, William Desmond Taylor. From the start, Detective Klein felt something was off about the crime. The woman, Dolly A. Strike, had been locked in the closet when police found her, the key tossed on the floor outside the closet, too far for her to reach. Dolly's story all made sense. It was just such an odd story she told, the way she explained being locked inside by the burglar, and her insistence that she and her husband never quarreled, even once. The murder weapon was odd, too. The husband, Fred, had been shot with a 25 caliber pistol, a woman's gun, in his opinion. Men didn't carry around such guns, particularly burglars expecting to use said weapon. They usually preferred something larger than a 25 caliber pistol. Several days after the murder, Detective Klein spoke to Dolly Aesterike, who reported that her husband's diamond watch had been stolen in the break-in. At the time, detectives couldn't find anything that had been stolen, making them wonder if the crime truly was all for the money, but then figured the burglar, or burglars, might have simply been scared off and had to flee the home before the cops or neighbors arrived. Now, Dolly was telling him that the thief must have taken the watch on the night of the murder. Patrolman Arthur Stoll related his memories of that evening to Detective Klein, noting that he arrived at the home on Lafayette Place, now in Silver Lake, to find the Aesterike vehicle parked in the driveway with its headlights still on and illuminating one side of the house. The only unlocked door or window was the one that Flora and Cora had been staring across the street into almost as soon as the trouble started. Dolly's first official statement was this. After I turned on the light in my room, I heard a noise as though my husband had tripped on the rugs. Just as I placed my coat on the hanger, I heard three shots and as soon as I turned to leave the closet, I was roughly pushed back, and the door slammed and locked in my face. She says she screamed and hammered on the door with the heel of her shoe until she fainted. 
When asked, Dolly explained that she didn't overhear any of the words that were exchanged between her husband and the killer. The autopsy revealed that her husband, Fred, had been shot three times, once through the forehead and twice in the chest. A fourth bullet missed him entirely and lodged itself in the ceiling. It was done at close range, scorching Fred's clothing in the process. A popular detective magazine of the time wrote, It seemed rather strange that the burglar should be encountered by an unarmed householder, for Asterike had no weapon on him and be forced to commit a murder to make an escape. Dolly explained that the murderer must have entered from the living room window, for she was certain it was closed when she left the home that evening. Again, nothing was taken. The silverware was in its place, and a wad of money was found in the dead man's pockets. None of the neighbors had seen anyone leave the house that night, and Flora and Cora would have noticed the way they were watching and with their vantage point. There were no other leads, no other suspects. The only other person involved was Dolly Eisterreich herself, and she had been locked inside a closet. It was a classic locked room mystery, and no one could figure it out, even the chief of detectives, Herman Klein. A year passed before a very overweight and very blonde man walked into the police station. Roy Klum, sometimes described as a businessman, other times as a motion picture director, had known the Aesterikes for many years. Several days after the murder, a concerned Dolly approached him and asked for his help, handing him a large envelope with a revolver inside. She had the gun for protection, but seeing as her husband was killed with a similar gun, it would be suspicious for her to have one if the police came looking around. She would hate for the police to suspect her, especially with how traumatized she already was. Clum agreed to help her get rid of it, and asked if she wanted it tossed in the ocean. No, she replied. The La Brea oil field. There is no bottom to it. So, off Roy Clum went to the La Brea tar pits and flung the gun in. Dolly and Clum had gotten cozy over the past year, particularly since she had no more husband. But by January 1923, she had tired of Clum and broke up with him, prompting him to walk into the police station to tell detectives about the gun Dolly Aesterike asked him to dispose of. On June 12, 1923, Dolly was arrested for her husband's murder the year prior, and when this news made the headlines across Los Angeles, a second man turned himself into the police. He, too, had been asked by Dolly to dispose of a gun. Apparently, the guns were a set of two. For the same reasons that she told Roy Klum, Dolly asked her neighbor, J.E. Farber. Farber originally hid the pistol under the seat of his car, then threw it into a shed behind his house, then finally settled on burying it beneath a rose bush in his yard, 
where the police later came to dig it up. This gun was definitely recovered, but tests proved that it was not the gun used in the murder. As for the gun thrown into the tar pits, there are conflicting reports of what happened to it. The LA Times claimed that police later located it near an oil sump in the La Brea Boulevard district. Others report that the second weapon was never recovered. For those who don't know about the La Brea tar pits, the tar pits in Los Angeles are sticky, gooey pits of asphalt, or crude oil, that have swallowed up various animals and dinosaurs over the centuries. When Angelinos began discovering bones there in the 1870s, they first assumed they were simply animal bones, cattle or something that had got stuck in the tar and died. I mean, the natives who lived here long before these guys knew what the tar was, and they used it to waterproof their canoes and that sort of thing. And then, when the white people all settled in Los Angeles, they began to copy the natives and use the tar for roofing and that sort of thing. It wasn't until 1901 that scientists realized the tar pit bones might be more significant and began the first excavation. When the bones were declared prehistoric, dozens of excavations followed. Between 1913 and 1915, excavations made by the Los Angeles Museum unveiled over 750,000 plant and animal specimens. Today, the La Brea tar pits are famous for their fossils and all the sticky tar that is still bubbling up all around the museum. If you grew up in LA like I did, Chances are you've been on a school field trip to La Brea Tar Pits. So my question, as an Angelino who was terrified of said tar pits as a child, is how on earth did someone throw a gun into a tar pit and then actually be able to retrieve it? Was it just a very half-hearted toss out of the window? Because if Crumb meant to get rid of the gun by throwing it into a pool of tar, how likely is it that police of 1923 would actually see that gun again? To begin with, tar pits are a weird-ass place to get rid of evidence. Why was that the first location that popped into their mind? And why did they think that was a good idea? I don't know. Anyway, the gun was either too damaged to prove its connection to the murder, or it simply was just never found. The case went to trial, and as was expected, there was not a whole lot of evidence against Dolly Aesterreich. All there was was the unsettling feeling that they did not have the entire truth. A female journalist named Alma Whitaker gave her perspective on the trial, having been there and listened to it all. The circumstantial evidence is all excitingly Sherlock Holmesy, she wrote. The lawyers are very interesting fellows. In fact, the stage is all set for a first-class murder trial. The court was packed, everyone was eager to see Dolly for themselves, but once they saw her, they were… underwhelmed. The star of the show is utterly flat, unimpressive, dumb, dull, bromidic, Whitaker commented. 
It did not matter what perfectly ghastly things were being said about her, she just sat there. And she doesn't seem clever enough to act. As boring as Mrs. Aesterike was in court, it worked in her favor, for no one there could envision such a dull broad being capable of murder. I found most of the women in court prejudiced in her favor, and women are not strong for vamps and murderesses. They simply could not discover her interesting enough to be dangerous in any degree. Her dull character was highlighted by the dazzlingly corrupt district attorney Buron Fitz. You may remember D.A. Fitz from episode 38 on Ned Doheny, the D.A. who called off the inquest after 48 hours despite promising a sweeping investigation of the crime. Fitz was like the archetypical corrupt D.A. of the 1930s, just more hopped up on power and more flush with cash. So when Buron Fitz got all uppity and core about the crime, and started wagging his chubby finger in Dolly's inexpressive face and calling her a murderer, it only seemed to underline how utterly boring and void of emotion the woman was. Clearly not a woman passionate enough to have her husband murdered in her own home. And yet, Whitaker comments, perhaps this masterly inactivity is her best bet. One simply cannot associate her with violent emotions and sensational drama. Just a little more sophisticated, just a little better looking, just a trifle of dash and a hint of twinkle, just a little more clothes-wearing talent, might have damned her. Dolly's lawyer pled for her bail while D.A. Fitz argued against it, and revealed his own racism, saying, If she were a poor, friendless Mexican woman, there would be no such motion before the court. I ask that the court consider her impartially, in light of any other suspected murderess. Mrs. Aesterike's lawyer moved to dismiss the case. There were no eyewitnesses, no weapon had been definitively linked to the murder, and the murder suspect had been sitting inside a locked closet at the time. The door locked from the outside. The case was officially dropped for insufficient evidence in 1925 by fellow district attorney Asa Kais, also corrupt and later convicted of bribery and sent to prison. These were prohibition times, folks. Things were still wild in the West. With the case dropped, Dolly Aesterike was given access to her husband's estate, worth around $240,000. According to an inflation calculator, that's a little over $4 million today. Not chump change. Dolly was uncomfortable living in the same home her husband was shot dead in, so she moved to Beechwood Drive in Hollywood. Joining her in the home was Herman Shapiro, her estate attorney, whom she had begun a relationship with while still in prison. Dolly and Shapiro lived together until 1930, when Shapiro learned Dolly had been cheating on him with her business partner. Slighted by Dolly, and slightly afraid of her, Herman Shapiro made a visit to the police to tell them what he knew about the murder of Fred Aesterike, 
back in 1922. Shapiro then told the tale of Los Angeles's strangest murder mystery. In 1930, about eight years after the murder, Herman Shapiro brandished a diamond watch, given to him by Dolly Aesterike. Finally, the evidence that authorities were looking for to convict the widow of her husband's murder. The watch was identical to the one allegedly taken by the burglars, and reported to Detective Klein as stolen. Some time after the murder, Dolly had approached her estate attorney, Herman Shapiro, with a watch, which she said she had found between some couch cushions in the living room. Apparently, the watch hadn't been stolen after all, just misplaced. But she could hardly tell the police about the watch now, not with all eyes on her already suspecting her of the crime. Shapiro agreed that handing the watch to the police wasn't the wisest move, but Dolly didn't want to keep it on her. If you're determined to give it away, give it to me, Shapiro told Dolly, then said something to the effect of, I have a birthday next month and I would appreciate the watch as a gift. So Shapiro took the watch and the two lived together for seven years before the spurned man learned of Dolly's infidelity and went to the police. On April 8, 1930, the Los Angeles Times headlines blared, Secret Room May Solve Famous Murder Puzzle. Following a tip from Shapiro, the authorities had another look at the Aesterike home on Lafayette Park Place, and confirmed that there was, in fact, a secret room in the home, accessible behind a trap door that led into the attic. After eight years of finding no answers, the police were finally starting to understand what happened that August night in 1922. And it all began with Dolly. Dolly's real name was Walburga. She was not hiding this from the police or anything, she just preferred the name Dolly to Walburga, and who could blame her for that? I wouldn't want the name Walburga either. Walburga Corshell was born in Chicago, and was only eight years old when her father, a plumber, abandoned the family. Hence, she had to begin working at a young age. She was 12 when she started working, and only 14 when she met Fred Aesterike, who was 17 at the time. His father owned the shoe store they worked in. After the two married, Fred opened his own shoe store, followed by another garment business. The Aesterikes were successful, and soon enough they found themselves in a large Milwaukee mansion, which they would upgrade several times before finally moving out to Los Angeles. Dolly and Fred did have a son named Raymond, but he died at the age of nine in 1910. They never had another child. 
There are conflicting stories about how Dolly met Otto Sanhuber, but the most widely told, and the story printed in all the papers, was that Dolly was in her Milwaukee mansion when her sewing machine broke. She called her husband at work, and he sent an employee from the factory to go fix it. Otto Sanhuber. Otto was an orphan. His earliest memories were of living in Milwaukee with the Sanhuber family, whose name he adopted. Forced to get a job after sixth grade, Otto began working in a glove factory, then in the Singer Sewing Machine Company as a repairman, and then took a job at the A-Strike factory. 26-year-old Dolly opened her door to 17-year-old Otto, wearing nothing but a silk robe, stockings, and Chanel number no. 5. Okay, I was joking about the Chanel part, but not the rest. The nerdy boy had not been with a woman before and was probably a bit flabbergasted as he worked away on the sewing machine with a fully grown and half-dressed woman throwing herself at him. Every time he glanced over at her, her robe had come just a little bit more undone. Rumors swirled about the ace strikes. Sometimes they had loud fights in which neighbors allegedly overheard Dolly complaining about Fred's lack of sex drive. Not that they could blame her with how much Fred was obviously drinking. A guy that drunk all the time couldn't have been the best husband. Whatever her reasons for doing so, Dolly invited Otto into her bed and began an affair that spanned nearly a decade. They met in hotels at first, and at home while Fred was away, but when neighbors became suspicious of the young man they kept seeing around the A-Strike home, Dolly felt obligated to explain to them that the man was simply her vagabond half-brother. It was at this time that Dolly realized the need for better accommodations. According to Otto, Dolly was the first person in my life to give me love and affection. The orphan did not have a family of his own and was touched by Dolly's affection for him. He never really felt at ease in the world anyway, being the awkward, nerdy, glasses-wearing orphan that he was. It was not shocking at all when the couple first began to float the idea that Otto lived with Dolly, and with Fred, in their attic. Not that Fred was allowed to know. Otto moved into the Easterike's attic in Milwaukee, which Dolly helped furnish with a cot and some other essentials. Whenever Fred was home, Otto was up in the attic, but during the day, Otto always climbed down to be with Dolly. Sex was number one on their to-do list, but they did a lot else together, too. Otto helped with the chores and cleaning during the day, and delighted in neighbors' comments that the home was so well taken care of. By night, Otto loved to read detective novels, which Dolly checked out for him from the library. The Easterikes changed addresses several times in Milwaukee, and Otto followed them from home to home, attic to attic, later declaring that he has, quote, lived in four garrets in Milwaukee, end quote. Each day, Otto came down, 
helped wash the vegetables for dinner, sweep the floors, make the bed, and even care for Fred's clothes. If Otto forgot to dust a certain spot, Dolly would joke with him that she would have to talk to Fred about this. Theirs was an odd relationship for many reasons, but their dynamic was especially unusual. For Dolly seemed to be not just a lover, but a mother figure to Otto, who clearly was unaware of how the world really worked. Over the years, Otto had realized he could manipulate Dolly into giving him what he wanted by going on a hunger strike, refusing to eat anything when he was upset with Dolly until she felt bad for him and changed her tone. By 1918, the Easter had decided on moving to Los Angeles, where Fred had opened a new West Coast factory. Dolly selected a home on Lafayette Park Place, with an attic decent enough for Otto. She sent him ahead with some money, and he worked for some time as a janitor before the Easter arrived and settled into their new home. Otto moved in just after, eager to be back in the shelter of his attic. After five years of being a hermit, it was hard living back in the real world. He craved the safety of his retreat. He had also been working on his new hobby, writing adventures and mysteries to send into magazines. Under a pseudonym, of course. Dolly went to the bank and started a joint account for Otto under her maiden name, in which she deposited his earnings. Otto's entrance into the Easterike home created quite the mystery for Fred. Every now and then he heard a throat being cleared and he had no idea where the sound came from. There were always strange noises and he could swear that his cigars were always going missing. And then there was the food in the icebox. One night the Easterikes would have a feast, but then the next night there was hardly enough for leftovers. Dolly's response to Fred was always that perhaps he would remember more about the cigars he smoked and food he ate if he weren't so drunk all the time. Frankly, Dolly explained, she was starting to become worried about Fred's mental health. Was he losing it, always seeing and hearing things? Dolly suggested he ought to go see a doctor. Fred, who would rather have been going nuts than see a doctor, shrugged off the suggestion and commented less about the noises he heard. On August 22, 1922, Fred and Dolly went out to a restaurant with their friends, the Coons. The Coons drove home at around 10.30pm, but then received a call at 1am from the Easterike's neighbor, Flora Rawson, who told them of the tragedy. Mr. Kuhn drove to Lafayette Park Place and entered the home to find chairs overturned on top of the body of his friend Fred, whom he had just been laughing with hours earlier. When Dolly's new fling Roy Klum and the neighbor Farber came forward with the two pistols the following year in 1923, Dolly was arrested. Herman Shapiro was Dolly's estate attorney, but much as she cozied up to him, Dolly still could not magically transform him into a criminal attorney. Shapiro had been advising her to get a criminal attorney, 
and the two finally hired Frank Dominguez, another familiar character for those who are around to hear the Virginia Rappé episodes in season one. Frank Dominguez first represented Fatty Arbuckle, who was accused of causing Rappé's death, and perhaps even raping her. The truth of the case was complicated, and I suggest you listen to episodes 12 and 13 if you want to know more. Anyway, Dominguez was the one to accuse Rappé's friend of being an extortionist and essentially framing Fatty Arbuckle. That was a year or so earlier. In 1923, Dominguez was representing Dolly, who was sitting in jail, trying to whisper something to her new lover, Herman Shapiro. He's there, she explained. Her vagabond half-brother was living in the attic, and she needed Shapiro to go speak to him and bring him some food and supplies. He had no idea what the hell she was talking about, but she insisted. She told him to go to the closet and begin scratching his nails on the wall to signal the man to emerge. Shapiro did as he asked, though he couldn't bring himself to scratch on the walls like a weirdo, so he instead just rapped on them. And down came Otto, who already recognized Shapiro from all the time he had spent in the house with Dolly. This was insane, Shapiro thought, and way over his head. He consulted with Frank Dominguez, who advised Shapiro to help Dolly get Otto the hell out of that house. The hell out of LA, California, the country, whatever, just get him out. With Shapiro's help, Otto left the attic. In the years since the murder, Dolly had moved into a new home in Hollywood, and so it was this attic that he crawled down from. Shapiro drove Otto out to the San Fernando Valley, he eventually found himself in San Francisco, and then moved to Portland, Oregon, where he worked as a janitor. Who said living in a woman's attic and cleaning her home didn't give you job experience? Dolly continued her life with Shapiro and was mostly forgotten until 1928, when she was sued by a woman for $300,000. The woman alleged that she had stolen her husband's affections. Her husband happened to be Dolly's new business manager. By 1930, Shapiro had tired of Dolly, or her infidelity, or both, and went to the police with the diamond watch she had given him, along with the story of Otto Sanhuber, whom he obviously figured out was not Dolly's vagabond half-brother. When news of the secret attic man hit the papers, it was an immediate sensation. The police had yet to arrest Otto, so he remained nameless until he entered police custody. When arrested, Dolly maintained her story, but Otto spilled all. On April 9th, 1930, Otto, now claiming to be Walter Klein, gave a full confession. I thought Mrs. Aesterich was being killed, he explained. 
When the couple came home, he heard sounds of a disagreement and the situation becoming more violent. Suddenly, I went mad with rage, seized my little automatic pistol and went downstairs. Asterike whirled on me and I pulled the trigger. He fell on the floor, bleeding. At the time, he did not mention Dolly, opting to leave her out of his confession entirely. Otto claimed that after he shot Fred, he shoved Dolly in the closet and then went to check on Fred, whom he found was already dead. He went upstairs to Dolly to tell her and then lock her in the closet so she wouldn't be suspected. Otto put the key in the lock, turned it, and then dropped it on the floor in the hallway outside the bedroom. He then hid for like two or three days straight until Dolly found him and told him it was okay to come out. Otto's first account of the murder reads almost like one of the detective novels that he had become obsessed with. Fearing for his fair damsel's life, he risked his own to fly down the stairs, pistol in hand, to defend her from the brute. Unhand this lovely woman, he might have bellowed to Fred before Fred lunged, Otto lost his nerve, and then shot at him. Very early on, psychiatrists were sent for to examine Otto. No one believed the guy was in his right mind, particularly from looking at him. He was deathly pale, and to be honest, he looked exactly what you would think a guy who lived for nearly a decade in an attic would look like. Though he was perfectly kind to everyone, he did not look or behave normally. When the trial began, his counsel would call Otto easily suggestible, and claimed that he was a mental slave to Dolly. Otto himself said he was Dolly's sex slave. When they first began their fling, they would have sex up to eight times a day, he related. Some called the case the love slave murder, but the most popular moniker was the Batman case. Because the guy living in the attic for eight years had begun to resemble a damn bat. When Otto Sanhuber, alias Walter Klein, secured an attorney to defend him, the lawyer got him to retract his confession, leaving only Herman Shapiro's testimony, which the defense claimed was all made up by a spurned lover. By June of 1930, Otto testified in a high-pitched voice that he had actually been up in the attic during the murder and only confessed to the crime before because he was told it was the only way to help save Dolly. His revised account of the night is, I was sleeping in my cubbyhole on the night of the murder when I heard the Aesterikes come home. I think they called the cat and it woke me up. I heard her come upstairs and then there was an awful sound downstairs. He then heard Dolly move through the house and presumably be shoved inside the attic, where he heard her whimpering. He began to scratch at the walls to communicate with her, but the only response he got was, Be still! Do you want me killed? Then came Dolly's revised account of that night during the trial. She was now significantly more emotional than when Whitaker wrote about her in 1923. Now, Dolly was weeping while she explained how she and Fred returned home that night, when she accidentally slipped on the rug and Fred reached out to grab her, which 
Otto mistook for an assault. She then heard Otto appear and yell at Fred to stop. Fred turned and rushed toward Otto, who defended himself by pulling the trigger. Otto later led her upstairs to the closet and locked her in, saying, You've got to say it's burglars. With all of these conflicting statements, and Dolly trying to save her ass while Otto tried to save his, it becomes hard to see through all the contradictions. Clearly, Otto didn't want to be found guilty, but nor did he want to call his old lover a murderer, and the same went for Dolly. The most likely scenario is that the Aesterikes returned home late, and an argument broke out in which Otto overheard and went down to confront Fred. An enraged and very large and scary Fred began walking toward Otto, who might have asked Fred to stop, but Otto knew he would not. Terrified that Fred would reach the gun first, Otto fired the first shot, but it misfired and hit the ceiling. Realizing his mistake, Otto ran from the living room, Fred chasing after him and throwing him up against the front door. Fred began struggling with Otto for the pistol in his hands, and in the struggle, a shot is fired into Fred's temple. Fred slumped to the ground, where Otto fired twice more into his chest, just above his heart. Otto and Dolly then thought fast, turned off the porch light, locked Dolly inside the closet, and then Otto hid in the attic until it was safe. Otto stuck around in the attic, even when Dolly began new romances, first with Roy Klum and later with Herman Shapiro. Otto told the court that he remembered when Klum started coming around. Dolly wasn't as good to him, though she still had her moments of kindness. She said once, I was like a faithful dog with a human soul. Otto had moved on with his life since leaving Dolly's attic. In Portland, he had met, fallen in love with, and married a woman by the name of Matilda Schultz, and was working as a janitor, seemingly happy. At the trial, Otto made a point of correcting someone, saying, I object to the word love. I loved Mrs. Aesterreich as a boy loves his mother, not as a man loves his wife. The prosecutor did not want the jury fooled into believing this was some sort of a love story. If there is any sympathy to be felt in this case, do not waste it on this woman, he argued. All your sympathy should be with the dead man who wanted a home and a loving wife and who was shot down in his own home when he discovered the lover of his unfaithful wife in his own living room. He ended with a plea. Hang this woman. The defense attorneys had to have a special talk with the jury before letting them go into deliberation, letting them know that, although they may find Dolly guilty of moral turpitude, as in being so immoral that it has offended society, it was not the same thing as being guilty of murder. She is charged with murder and should not be found guilty of the more serious offense, even if the prosecution established charges of immorality. There were an unusually large number of women who were excused from the jury because they were opposed to the death penalty. 
In the end, the jury was composed of six women and six men. The jury was equally split when it came time to vote, with six wanting to acquit and six to convict. Despite all the women opposed to the death penalty, the LA Times noted that all six women on the jury voted for conviction. Ultimately, two men were insistent that Dolly was innocent and would not change their opinions. There was a hung jury. It would be six years before the indictment against Dolly for murder was dismissed. The jury could not agree, and no new evidence was ever brought to light. The case was dismissed in 1936, and Dolly lived out the rest of her life with Ray Hedrick, her business manager, and the man she had cheated on Herman Shapiro with. In March of 1961, they married. Photographs of the event show how ill and feeble she had become, with a stronger Ray Hedrick leading Dolly's way. She died two weeks after her wedding on April 15, 1961, from cancer of the face. As for Otto, 43 years old in 1930, he was found guilty of manslaughter. However, the statute of limitations for manslaughter ran out after three years, and it had been a whopping eight years since Fred's death. They had no choice but to let the Batman go free. He left with his loving wife, Matilda, and disappeared into history. He did have news for everyone at the trial, though. He had written a book on his experience. He titled it, Blood Will Out. Welcome back to Old Blood, and welcome to Season 4. If you enjoyed the episode, please be kind enough to leave us a review, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. For more info and photos on this episode, check out our Instagram, and same goes for our Patreon, which is now up and running. Thank you for coming back. In case you haven't noticed, your host has a little cold. Hopefully I sounded raspy and sexy rather than just weird and sick. Music credits to Facilion Studios, Holizna, and the original song sung by Virginia Liston in 1926. <laughs>